<laughs> and for my second trick, no, uh, that is the extent of my electronic knowledge, being able to switch the batteries in my wireless. So back to some serious matters. We are in John chapter 12, and we only have um, about another week's worth of Jesus's life on display in the book of John, although John takes 10 more chapters to go that last week of Jesus's life. Uh, but we are towards the very end of his active ministry on earth, one-on-one -on -one with his disciples and the people in Jerusalem. And last week, Daniel showed us how his entry into Jerusalem was a foundational moment in not just his life, but the whole story of salvation that Jesus came to produce and secure for us. And we have, throughout the entirety of the book of John, looked at this one simple idea that Jesus, the Messiah, is the overcoming God King. And we have seen how he's put on display, how he overcomes just the normal things in our lives that we struggle with. We struggle with uh, temptations. He gives us evidence on how to overcome that. But mainly we have seen Jesus demonstrating his Messiahship and his power and his authority through miracles. And while it is super interesting and would have to be mind-boggling to witness him walking on water, him controlling the weather to where he says stop and it obeys him, for him to turn water into wine, for him to give a blind person sight, a deaf person hearing, a lame person who's never walked the ability to walk again. And we saw last time in chapter 11 how he raised Lazarus from the dead. Those are amazing, physical, visible miracles. But it is nothing, nothing compared to what he is starting to engage in in chapter 12. It is a miracle that makes our Sunday morning possible. It is a miracle that makes you possible. It is a miracle that makes our future filled with hope and peace. It is a miracle that is beyond all other miracles that the world may have faced. In fact, you can combine everything that Jesus did in his life that are recorded in Scripture, and it pales in comparison to what he is about to do starting in chapter 12. And to put it plainly and simply, he's going to die. And in that death, in that sacrifice, in that willingly giving him over to the Roman authorities, to the Jewish authorities, and him dying upon that cross, in that single act, he grants you forgiveness of your sins. And he still does it today. It wasn't just for people back those in those days. It was for you in this day and age. The ability to have your sins forgiven. We're going to see this play out in John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. And uh, the first few verses there in chapter, in chapter 12, starting in verse 20, we have him setting up the scene for this miracle of miracles begin to be unfolded. He says in verse 20, John says and records for us, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So there's a group of people, not just Hebrews, not just people of Jewish descent 
or Jewish genetic descent of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Greeks went as well. These are proselytes. These are people who came to saving faith in Jehovah, in the Old Testament, believed it, followed the law, were circumcised, did sacrifices, and they were so dedicated to their religion, to Jehovah, that even on the days of great festivals, they would go to Jerusalem, even though they were not allowed into the temple area. They had to stay on the outskirts, yet they still offered up worship to God because they knew this was the God who gave them hope. This is the God who gave them peace. This is the God who could rescue them from their sins. So they turned away from their false gods, and they turned to the one true God. And these Greeks were going up to Jerusalem, just like the Hebrews were, wanting to experience what Passover meant. How God covered their sins through a sacrifice, and remembering the history of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. But they went up to the feast as well. And in verse 21, it says, Some of them came to Philip who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So we have a group of people who were, even though they believed in Jehovah, even though they were Jewish from the outside, yet truly weren't accepted into the Jewish culture and religion because they weren't the right genetic family makeup. Yet when they heard that Jesus was coming, they wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to hear from him. They wanted to have an audience with him. They wanted to have a communication with him because could it be that they were thinking, he's the promised one. He's indeed the Messiah, the overcoming God King. Is this the one who we've had stories about, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, talking about the sacrifice? Could this be him that David wrote the Psalms about, that the prophets spoke about? Could this be him? And they were excited. They wanted a meeting with him. Now, why did they go to Philip, and why did they go to Andrew? I cannot tell you how many commentaries I read that talked about this. And they would go paragraph after paragraph, page after page, and in the end, they would say, we really don't know. And oftentimes, we come to a scripture where we have a lot of interest in it going, why did they go to Andrew? Why did they go to Philip? Besides the fact that Philip and Andrew are the only two Greek names in all the disciples, all 12, the only two that had Greek names, meaning one who loves horses, Philip, and Andrew, one who was manly. They were Greek names. So maybe there was a Greek connection there. Maybe they thought, okay, at least they share a Greek name, so maybe we have a connection there. And commentaries would go hours and hours of reading on those little details, all to come to the conclusion, we don't know. And that is a very good and healthy place to be when we read Scripture, and Scripture doesn't give us an answer. Simply to go, it's recorded for us, it happened, these guys came to Philip, Philip went to Andrew, and they went to Jesus. That's the extent of how we should, well, we don't have to guess why the events took place the way they did. We don't have to guess why they went to Philip first. It's good enough that he went to Philip first. And we don't have to extrapolate or envision or even come up with a reason why. And I know that that is hard because we are by nature inquisitive. We want answers to things. Sometimes the answer 
the scripture is, I've said it, do you believe it? And that's the extent of our investigation of the scripture. And it's okay to have questions kind of in limbo. Why did they pick Philip? There were 11 other guys. They picked Philip. That's all we need to know. And that's all we can be satisfied with. But they go to him. And then they end up going to Jesus. They wish to see him. And so then we're told in verse 23 and 24 how Jesus interacts with this question. Jesus answered them. So Philip and, uh, and Andrew went to them saying, hey, we got a group of people that want to meet with you. They're Greeks. And this is Jesus' response. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Somewhat a confusing answer. You have a group of people that want to meet with you. Probably a large group. And your answer is not to address them, not to talk to them, but to make a statement about something that is about to happen. I am about to be glorified. And you wonder, what does it mean that Jesus is about to be glorified, that he is about to have the radiance of God on full display, that his life is going to reflect in such a way that people are going to praise God because of his life? What is, how is he going to be glorified? What great thing is he going to do? And the very next verse, he tells us how he's going to be glorified. He does it in a subtle way. He tells us an agricultural story, an agricultural parable, something earthly but with a heavenly meaning. He says, you know how it is when you take a seed. It has to die in the ground before it can bring forth life. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about his own life. The way in which he glorifies the Father and how the Father glorifies the Son is he's telling us he's going to die. And when he dies, which is the right thing that's going to happen, the result of that death is going to be life. And I keep going back to poor Thomas in chapter 11 when he heard about Lazarus dying and Jesus going back to perform that miracle of resurrection. Thomas's one response to the whole scenario was, we better go with him because we're going to die too. Might as well go with him because we're going to die. Death has been a central theme of Jesus' entire life. And now he is ready to take on that task that the Father has given him and die. And the way he presents that is still subtle. But the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. God is glorified in his Son's death. Now, I've experienced death. I've experienced people dying in my life many times. And I think we all have. I think we've all experienced a parent, a grandparent, a sibling, a cousin, a friend, maybe a child who passed away. And... I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that hurt. That's painful. That's hard. And yes, as believers, we have this moment in that grief and that sorrow, and we have a bit of joy because we know as a believer that person is safe 
that person is healed, that person is not suffering, that person is with Jesus, and that person we will one day see again and we will be glorified without pain or sorrow. We will be reunited in absolute perfection. So we give ourselves a little bit of hope and we kind of comfort ourselves that they're better than okay. They're glorious. But we, on this side of death, we feel the sorrow. We feel, we feel the loss. And that loss, that feeling, never goes away. I know people comfort each other by saying, you know what, in time, it'll get easier. In time, it'll get better. In time, it'll be okay. You know, I... I lost my father over 50 years ago, I'm still waiting for it to be okay. I'm still waiting for it to be fine. May not be as emotional, but the hurt, the sorrow, the loss is still there. How can Jesus say that this is a glorious thing to experience and to take place? Not just a happy thing, not just an okay thing, but his death will be glorious. Which means it's something to write songs about. It's something to raise your hands and say, praise God for the death of Jesus Christ. Praise God for death coming upon the only begotten Son who is perfect. Praise God for death. And not just dying in his sleep peaceably, but the gruesome torture of a cross. How can that be glorious, good, praiseworthy, songworthy? How can that be glorious? How can that bring praise to God? He begins to tell us in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus says to Andrew and Philip, and maybe all the Greek believers were listening at the same time, they hear Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour has come that the Son of Man has to be glorified. Awesome. You need to bury a seed, and when you do, it dies, but that death brings forth life. And now I'll tell you what your response to all that is. Follow me. Follow me, and you will be honored by the Father. Don't hold on to the things of this life and you will be okay. If you hold on to me, that is all you need is hold on to me and follow me. But Jesus, you just said where you're going. You just told us what's going to happen to you. You're going to die. You're going to give up this life that you have. You're going to give it up willingly. And you're going to give it up for people who are still your enemies. 
that's what you want me to follow? That's how the Father is glorified? You die, we die, we have to give up everything and hold just on to you? And the son says, yes, that is exactly, exactly what I'm asking you to do. You live, you love this life that you live, you're going to lose it. But if you hate this life and this world, you will keep it for eternal life. He's not telling us that we have to hate ourselves. Okay, that's not what the gospel is about. Hating yourself, beating yourself up, just demeaning yourself. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But he's also not talking about self-love and self-esteem and, and thinking the best of yourself. He's saying, in perspective, the things of this world, how closely should you attach yourself to the things of this world for happiness? Not at all. In fact, C.S. Lewis says, do not let your happiness depend on something you might lose. Do not let your happiness depend upon something you might lose. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, don't be satisfied with the things of this world, the stuff of this world, the ideas of this world, including your own life. Don't find happiness there. Find happiness in God. And when you find happiness in him, when you have happiness in Christ and Christ alone, all of a sudden the things of this world, as the famous hymn says, all these things grow strangely dim. It means they're not important. Happiness cannot be defined and dependent upon the things of this world. And Jesus is doing this in a roundabout way to explain it to us. Because he says in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And if it, where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We want to honor the Father. And to be honored by the Father is great joy. And in order to get there, I follow Jesus. I follow his examples, I follow his teaching, I follow his life. I cannot follow his miracles. I can't do his miracles. That's not what he's called us to do. He's called us to follow him as he follows the Father. That means dependent upon the Father. Jesus lived his life dependent upon the Father and only followed the Father's will. That's what our calling is, to follow the Father's will and to be dependent upon the Father not dependent upon my own life, not dependent upon my stuff, but dependent upon him. That's how Jesus lived. That's how he wants us to live. All other things can perish and fall away. If I have a relationship with the Father, I am safe, I am secure, and I am truly world cannot offer happiness. It, well, let me say the world can offer happiness, but it's very fleeting. It's here one day and gone the next, because I need the next thing to make me happy, and it better be bigger and better than that. My team wins the Super Bowl, fantastic, but in order for me to be really happy, they better win again next year, and of course, they better win again and again and again, and there's no ending to what you need in the world to feel happy and satisfied. And Jesus says happiness and satisfaction starts with and comes with dying to yourself first. In, John chapter, in 1 John, which John writes several years after he writes the Gospel of John, he writes in 1 John chapter 2 three very impactful verses 
for us today. I don't know if John was thinking about these verses as he was um, writing them, as he was thinking about what Jesus had just said, but I'm sure it was in his mind because these impactful statements in John chapter 12 are life-changing. So I know John had these in his mind, but he writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, 16, and 17, the following, and gives some explanation to this loving life versus dying to yourself. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and I love how John now describes what he means loving the world. He describes it for us. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away. Along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John puts this conversation that Jesus is having with Andrew and Philip for sure, and maybe the Greeks were hearing it at the same time, but he's letting us know that there is a dichotomy, that there's more than just a difference, there's, there's a war. There's a war over your heart and attention. And the world says, I'm going to give every effort it can to distract you. Maybe not to deny that Jesus, or of Jesus, but at least distract you enough that you don't fully depend on him. Maybe to get you worried about finances. Maybe to get you worried about retirement. Maybe to get you worried about your health. Maybe to get you worried about your job. Maybe to get you worried about the state of the nation. Maybe to get you worried about war and the rumors of war. Maybe to get you distracted by entertainment. Maybe to get you distracted by, yes, you know this, I'm fine. I went to Sunday school, I went to VBS, I donated a few things, I gave some cans of food, I gave a hat uh, to the homeless. That's all God wants from me. The world is very good at trying to replace Jesus with stuff and feel good things about what you've done. Very good at it. He's been doing it from the very beginning with Adam and Eve and Satan's temptation. Did God really say that? He doesn't want you to be like him. Come on, are you sure? It looks good. Eat it. And they fall to it. And we fall to it. And we're going to fall to it again, but we have the ability to remove that temptation and restore a relationship with God by remembering all the things of this world do not bring happiness. My goal and my desire is to bring Jesus glory, and the way to do that is to die to myself so that I might live for him. You know, in that passage in 1 John, we're given all the motivation we need to apply what Jesus says in John chapter 12. The world is passing away along with its desires. This world is not eternal. This world is not eternal. God is eternal. And he's made us eternal creatures. And we will either spend an eternity with him in the glories of heaven, or we will spend an eternity without him in the pains and sorrows of our own choices, which lead to hell. 
the world is not going to be there. The championships are not going to be there. The retirement is not going to be there. The vacations are not going to be there. The relationships in hell are not going to be there. There is nothing that is going to bring you comfort in hell. But if you surrender yourself, and what do I mean by surrendering yourself? What do I mean by dying to yourself? Scripture tells us that is the same as having faith in Christ, believing that he is who he says he is and believing what he has done is yours, believing that he died on your behalf and you are hidden in him. So when Thomas says in John 11, oh no, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to die, he's absolutely right. He is absolutely right. If you follow Jesus, you will die. And I'm not talking about just from old life, you die. I'm talking about you are going to die. Because when Christ went to the cross, who did he go to the cross for? You. He went to the cross for you. So in a very real, tangible, and judicial way, when Christ died, you died with him. He was your substitute. He took your name upon himself and said, Father, Treat me like you would have treated them. And he died. And you died right with him. But just as he told Philip and Andrew, that death has to take place. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You are now the much fruit. That was a very subtle way of me just calling you fruity. And no one laughed. You are the fruit of his labor, the benefit of his labor, the reward of his labor. And you're talked about as being the inheritance of the work of Christ. You are his bride made beautiful and free from sin. But it took death. It took Christ's death upon the cross and it took his substitutionary death, substituting your life for his, for you to die, that he might bring life to you. There is nothing in this world that is worth spending an eternity in hell over. Nothing. So that means that our comfort in this life and in death is simply Jesus. And I don't mean to say it's simply Jesus because it is a small matter. It is a singular matter. Christ matters. And your relationship with Christ matters so much that if you do not follow him, then there is a terrifying, absolutely breathtaking terror that awaits the person who does not have Christ as their all in all. Their only hope in this life and death, if you do not have Christ... Death is terrifying because the rewards of your labor will follow you. And the rewards of your labor of a life without Christ, all you have earned is judgment. Perfect judgment. Eternal, 
But that is why John is so beautiful in including this encouragement. While the world may pass away and all of its desires, all of its passions, all of its deception will pass away, those that follow Christ abide forever. There is eternal hope. Jesus then, in the last few verses, and we're going to get through verse um, uh, 27 through verse 36 here in John chapter 12. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? This is Jesus saying this. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We cannot pass over the fact when Jesus was talking about his death, he realized what was going to be happening. He realized the pain he was going to be in. He realized the judgment of those sins of the world would be placed upon him. He knew that God was going to exact perfect justice as if he was the sinner. To say that that would frighten me would be an understatement. I would be terrified. I would be frozen to know that I was going to endure the pain and suffering of my own sin. And yet Jesus is enduring the pain and suffering of all the sins of his people. All of them, not just one, but all of them. So he's asking the Father, as truly human, if there's another way, let's do that. Because this... this this is going to be monumental. It's never happened in the history of the world. Is there another way? But even if there isn't another way, whatever your will is, I'm willing to do it. See, that's what it means to follow Christ. No matter what the Father's will is, I'll do it. Even if it is scary, even if it means I'm going to be uncomfortable in this life, even if it means I'm going to die, it is far better to go through the sufferings of that pain than denying Christ and living for yourself. So he says, Father, glorify your name. Remember, all the attention is not on Jesus dying, but on how the Father is glorified, how the Father is represented, how the Father is praised. And Jesus knows in order for the Father to receive the most praise possible from all of creation, I need to die. And so if that's what it takes for the Father to be recognized and praised for all eternity from his people, from you and me, then I'm willing to do it. And at that moment, only for the second time in history, we're told in verse 28, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The Father speaking from heaven he did it on the day in which Jesus was baptized. And now he's doing it again. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. What has he glorified, and what is he going to glorify again? Well, we're told the verse before. Father, glorify your name. Jesus tells the Father, I want you to receive glory, praise, worship. And the Father responds, I've done that. Jesus and the Father are right in tandem. They are right side by side, knowing exactly what was going to be happening for the maximum amount of praise to the Father. Jesus would give his life. 
would be buried. Well, the crowd stood there in verse 29 and heard something, and it sounded like it had thundered. Another said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment in the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. So Jesus has this great conversation about dying and how the Father is glorified. The Father responds by saying, I'm doing exactly that. Everyone has a response like, what is going on? This voice out of heaven, is it thunder? Is it a prophet? What is going on? Jesus clarifies it and says, this was spoken for you so that you may know exactly what is going on, that the Son of Man might be lifted up. The crowd goes, but the Messiah is an overcoming God king who is eternal. He can't die. And Jesus says, he's going to have to die. But right now, don't focus on my death. Focus on the fact that I am here present, calling you to repentance and calling you to life. Will you follow him? While Jesus didn't use those words at the end of this little section here, through the end of verse 36, the middle of verse 36, I think that is absolutely what is implied, is are you going to follow Jesus? I can't answer that question for you. I, I can't answer it for you. I want to say yes. But that's a question only you can answer. Will you follow him? And it may require your death. It may require all your money. It may require your health. It may require all your relationships. It may require you for be, to be alone, to be isolated to lose friends, to lose a job. It may require you to forsake all the comforts of this world. But is it worth it to lose all of that for a relationship with the Father through Christ? I would say it's not just worth it. It, it's, it is absolutely necessary for you to believe that for you to have any happiness in this life any peace in this life any contentment joy and hope you have to follow Christ amen amen let the team come up and let me share a short prayer with you Father, while it is hard to, at times, reject the things of this world because it is so tempting to find comfort and assurance and joy in the things of this world, 
Forgive us, Father, for placing our trust in things other than you. We want our lives to glorify you and to be reflective of your greatness and your goodness. Help us, Father, to look at the things of this world through your eyes, that it is passing away, but you and you alone remain. Help us, Father, to be strong in that conviction of following you. In Jesus' name we pray.